Good afternoon and welcome to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can also check us out beyond the FM dial by going online to radionorthland.org. You can listen to us live as we air on Saturday afternoons, or you can check us out any old time by uh, digging into our vast archives, and they're available at www.radionorthland.org. The Rasslin' Memories page is on there. And you can check us out, too, via TuneIn. Hi, I'm Glenn Broggett sitting uh, with uh, no George today. George is out on assignment once again. He's uh, actually taking a nice vacation. But I have a great guest with us today, and uh, he has put out a wonderful first book. Yeah, and this book is definitely one for wrestling fans, nostalgia fans. It's uh, a look at, well, actually his grandmother. Yes, he is the grandson of the legendary pro wrestling promoter and really an unsung pioneer of the business, uh, the lovely Ms. Christine Jarrett. And the book is called Teeny, Professional Wrestling's Grand Dame. To give us some insight, and uh, we'll talk about the book and the life of uh, Christine Jarrett as someone who got to know her, of course, by family bloodline, her grandson, Brennan Martin. Thank you so much, Brennan, for coming on the program today. And I have to tell you right from the get-go, I really enjoy it. In fact, I just told you before we went on the air here, I finished up reading the book, so it's still kind of fresh in my head, the life uh, of your uh, grandma and uh, also... A uh, wonderful look back, and we'll talk about that book even more. But thank you for coming on, and what a great book. Well, thanks very much, Glenn. I'm, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm thrilled to hear that you enjoyed the book. Oh, oh yeah. It was uh, one of those things that when you, you, you had the time and I made the time, I, I got locked in, and it was hard to put down. And that's the sign, man. That That's what gets me in, and that's what got me curious from the get-go uh, about this book and getting in touch with you and, and, and talking and setting up this interview to discuss this book, and you took a different approach. This was your first book, of course, but you took a different approach to, to the book. You describe it uh, in well, reviews and recent things online as a biographical novel. Now, can you tell us uh, about why you went about that approach, uh, the reasoning behind uh, taking uh, this book about your grandmother into the direction of more of a biographical novel? Well, yeah, there were a few reasons. I mean, one is... I, I'm no historian, right? I, I knew that there were a lot of people um, out there who have done that and, and could do it a lot better than me. But really, I mean, the, my whole motivation for writing this book was about wanting my grandmother's story to be known. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted it to be a story that appealed, <clears throat> excuse me, not just to wrestling fans, uh, but to others who uh, who may not uh, tune in regularly to wrestling, and but who may nevertheless be interested in hearing the story of uh, a strong woman, uh, a single mother uh, who was, you know, this is kind of a cliche, but she was a single mother before it was cool, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and who, who really brought her family uh, from the depths of poverty uh, up into the middle class through education and hard work. And I just, um, I wanted it to be a story that would, that would be interesting to a lot of people, and I felt like this was the best format to do that. Mm-hmm. And if ever was a term to describe the book and to the life of, of Christine Jarrett of Teeny, it has to be the term blood, sweat, and tears, and it's all over and on display in this book, how she scrapped and survived in a world in a, and, and thrived, actually, in what was considered to be a man's world, you know, building herself up and eventually getting into the uh, offices of pro wrestling, professional wrestling. You know, this was definitely something that wasn't uh, in, in usual lockstep with what females were considered of at the time. 
Yeah, somehow, well, it was really her mother that instilled in her uh, an, an ethic that um, just she loved to work and she believed mm-hmm. in, in working hard and she saw it as her responsibility uh, to work and to provide for her family. And that was true, you know, not just before, or excuse me, not just after she became a single mother, but early in life. I mean, she mm-hmm. always believed in hard work. Uh, and, and early in life, that reflected itself in the fact that she believed in getting a good education. Um, and that was the most important thing to her. And she believed that if she graduated high school, she would be able to get a better job that would allow her to provide for her family in a way uh, that if she didn't have that education, she wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to describe her family as, you know, a very dysfunctional one uh, would be, uh, I guess, <laughs> a take, take, taking a bit lightly, uh, not only dealing uh, with her mother, but also uh, with the father as well, who had his own issues. Let's talk, take in a life, I guess, take a little postcard of what life was like in, in the household uh, when Teeny was growing up. So she grew up in uh, a home in East Nashville. Uh, with uh, a father who was extremely alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a craftsman. He was a, a, a painter, a house painter, and a wallpaper hanger. And he was very good at his job when he would do it. Uh, but the problem is that he would go on these binges uh, as soon as he would get paid and would disappear uh, into a bottle uh, for days on end and either show up passed out on the front lawn or possibly in jail. Uh, while her mother was was trying to raise five children on not a whole lot of income uh, and and sometimes on income that she was counting on that that just wasn't there mm-hmm. and so um, it was a it was a tough life for them growing up but um, her mother was also a very strong woman uh, someone who was really determined to do as best as she could with what little she had uh, but she was also um, someone who managed to um, save money, uh, even though she had very little to work with. And she would take Teeny to the bank with her on a weekly basis to deliver, to deposit 25 cents, 50 cents, really whatever she could scrape together. Uh, and she, uh, because she knew that that was important to sort of a, a longer term vision for, for how the family would do. Mm-hmm. And that was something that uh, Teeny also instilled later on, even into the, the people, the wrestlers that worked for that she worked around in the office in, in the Memphis territory was the power of how making things happen. Yes, you can make a lot of money, but really what matters in the end is how much you save and, and, and that she instilled in, in her, her kids as, as well. That's absolutely right. And that was one of her sayings, you know, it's not what you make, it's what you save. Uh, and um, she w- would continue that uh tradition uh, of going to the bank on a weekly basis and making her own deposits. And that's one of the reasons why at the very front of the book, um, I show a scan of, of one of Teeny's deposit books from the 60s because you know she had all those um, in her possession when she died. Um, she never got rid of that kind of stuff. And it showed how you know early on she would be depositing you know $2, $5, small amounts, and then Toward the end of the book, uh, that that particular one, she was making a bit more money uh, uh, in the business and was mm-hmm. depositing ten and fifteen dollars a month. But as you mentioned, it wasn't just about her doing that; she was looking to instill that in the boys, and it was very, very common. She would, in her uh, bottom drawer of her desk, she would hold the savings books 
of many of the wrestlers that worked for Nick Goulas because when they would come in to get paid, she would hand them their $20 or whatever it might be and say, okay, now give me $5 back. We're going to go put that in the bank. And mm-hmm. she would collect all that and then she would go make those deposits on their behalf and really instill in them that savings ethic because she knew that you know, things didn't last forever. She knew she'd seen enough wrestlers come and go uh, to know that that was not something that they could always depend on. And while they were making decent money, uh, she wanted them to put some of it away. Mm-hmm. And, and again, like it goes far back uh, to when she was bringing those small little uh, little deposits to the bank uh, as young as she could remember getting, you know, having, you know, gone up to the bank. And that really accelerated. Uh, and that and having to deal with, uh, you know, a father who you didn't know uh, what switch it was on or off, the good paw or the bad paw, because with alcoholism and drinking all the time, you didn't know what mood he would be in. But she, she kind of rose above that. And it also accelerated accelerated her into uh, finding a job, getting get, getting employment and working hard. And uh, she started off pretty young. I mean, it was a, it was basically a case of survival. Yeah, that's right. You know, she uh, she worked at different jobs uh, in downtown Nashville. She really liked working uh, in downtown Nashville because it was those trips to the bank with her mother that exposed her at the bank to the possibility that there's, you know, it's possible to live a different life. And she really always aspired uh, to, to, to that, that different life. And so uh, she, one of her early jobs was selling donuts uh, mm-hmm. on the street corner uh, to businessmen who were on their way to work in downtown Nashville. And uh, she, you know, that, that was okay, but she wasn't satisfied with that. And then she also uh, worked at a you know a drugstore for a while, but she she took a second job uh, selling tickets to the matches in Nashville, uh, working for Nick, and, and that was something that kind of fell in her lap after Nick originally approached uh, her younger sister, uh, who was not interested in the job. Uh, her, she had a job another job that she felt was more glamorous and more suited to what she wanted to do, but but uh, her sister said, you know, I've got to. I have a sister, Christine, who she's looking for something else, and, and I think she might be interested in this, and, and why don't you talk to her? And so so she set up this lunch between Nick uh, and my grandmother, Teenie, and, and sort of the rest is history. Uh, she got hired right away and started selling tickets. Uh, somehow Nick had convinced uh, the guy who ran Jarman's shoe store in downtown Nashville to let him set up an office in the back of that shoe store. And that's where the original uh, Goulas Welch uh, Enterprises uh, 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 ticket office was, was in the, in the back of a shoe store with, with Teeny selling the tickets. And, and then she was able to progress from there. Yeah, and then in the book you, you talk about uh, Teeny not only uh, you know, selling the tickets at the, play, at the shoe store, but uh, probably getting bored and uh, helping out with customers too because she was just so proactive and had such a good outward personality that it was like second nature. Well, that's right. She just she couldn't stand to be bored. She always wanted to be working and, and selling the tickets. Just it wasn't a full time endeavor. So, so yeah, she started selling shoes um, without getting paid for it. And of course, uh, the guy who ran the shoe store was just fine with that because she turned out to be his best salesman. Um, she uh, found that um, you know the bankers and other businessmen that would come in there to buy shoes. Uh, you know, that they treated her a lot differently than they did when they were buying donuts from her. And, and she liked that. She liked that attention. Um, she liked being sort of part of that crowd. Um, and she was good at it. 
Mm-hmm. And and you go back uh, to being the hard work ethic of Teeny. Uh, not only balancing these jobs, but you know she she got married at a very young age. You know, and that well, was that was that was that was per she the did. times. But I think uh, she also had that. But I mean, the way you know, not only raising kids, but she also had these jobs. But you know, again, the the help of the family too kind of play came into play as well. From what I gathered from the book, well, it, it absolutely did because you know she did um, get married young, and and that wasn't that unusual at the time. No. Uh, but um, uh, you know, then she ended up with with two children, and, and six months after my mother was born, uh, her uh, she caught her husband philandering, uh, something that her mother had told her was going on, but that she didn't believe. Mm-hmm. But she finally found the evidence and and promptly uh, threw him out. Uh, and so, uh, as a single mother who who wanted to work most certainly and needed to work for the family. Um, she couldn't have done that without the help of her mother, um, mm-hmm. who who basically raised uh, my mother and my, my uncle Jerry Jarrett, who everybody on this broadcast I'm sure knows. Oh, for yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, and her her mother, um, who uh, we all called Mama Wright, but whose name was Bertie. Um, you know, Bertie raised not just uh, not just my mother and Jerry, but but other. Um, uh, grandchildren as well. So it was a, a full household uh, of kids uh, when uh, my mother was growing up. Um, and, and Bertie was somewhat reluctantly stuck with uh, the job of, uh, after raising her own five uh, kids, she then raised several grandchildren as well. Pretty much a generational melting pot there at the house. Absolutely, because it, it was also... Uh, my uh, my grandmother's sister, uh, Mary Catherine, uh, she was the one who originally introduced uh, Teeny and Nick, uh, who who helped out as well. I mean, my mother really um, spent an awful lot of time uh, with Mary Catherine, who lived there in, in one of the rooms of the house. They had they had since moved from East Nashville uh, over to Twenty Second Avenue on on the west side of town, um, and it was uh, it was a full house. They had. Uh, they had the the grandchildren. They had uh, uh, Teeny and and Mary Catherine, and then eventually also her her husband Bob, uh, a, as well as um, they would rent out rooms to boarders. Uh, they called them roomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what uh, that's what my family called them. And they, you know, so different folks would come in and and rent rooms in the house, and and because it was just it was all about you know, uh, Teeny was was working hard, but at that point she was of course not making very much money and. And they really needed to to make all the money they they could, um, and did it in every way every way possible, from taking in laundry to taking in renters. Mm-hmm. When did the teeny start to kind of get a little bit more of a foothold into the the office when it became more of just a part time job, and she was starting to make better money where it was taking it on full time. Uh, and and I, I do believe that was right around the time uh, when they've left the shoe store as well. But could you take us into when Teeny started to get a little more comfortable uh, financially uh, with her situation with the uh, with with Goulas and Welch? Yeah, she made she made slow progress at first, but it was sort of a, a continual um, uphill path for her. Uh, they did move out of the shoe store into uh, what became a, a series of offices in various hotels in uh, in Nashville. Uh, the most famous of which was probably the Maxwell House Hotel, mm-hmm. uh, where they were until it until it burned down. Um, in uh, I'm going to forget the dates, but around 1960 or 61, I forget exactly. Uh, it, but then they were in the the James Robertson Hotel and the Sam Davis Hotel and, and others, and and 
And so the progression that Teeny made was first uh, going from ticket seller to you know, more of a, a bookkeeper and a, a, a executive assistant slash secretary for, for Nick. Um, and she was very good at that. You know, she had great attention to detail. Uh, she made absolutely certain uh, that things were always uh, right uh, with the deposits at the bank. Um, and, and I'll take one sort of digression here. One of the things she was famous for is that um, you know when she would count the money out because it was it was definitely a cash business at that time. So it was all about uh, you know making sure that the cash was right. Sure. Um, but she would you know she would insist on counting it three times, and if it wasn't she didn't get the same number all three times, she would start over until she would get the same one three times. And then there's those little paper wrappers that uh, banks would, would mm-hmm. put around stacks of cash. And she always initialed the ones that she counted. She put a little CJ on it, and sometimes she wrote Nick Goulas. Um, and I've still got one of those wrappers uh, that she used. But the bank, te- you know, she was so good at this that the bank tellers came to know that if she counted it and it had her initials on it, uh, it didn't need to be recounted. Anybody else would bring it into the bank, and they would oh. immediately tear that little thing off and then count it themselves to make sure. Yeah, that's quite, that, that's quite a bit of credibility uh, that she built up, not only from her days at working as a teller, but uh, to be able to be th- that good, that accurate, and that could have only been uh, a very beneficial, especially sometimes with dealing with promoters and the like. Professional wrestling could be an up-and-down business, especially uh, in Memphis with, with Goulas and Welch financially. Well, it could because Nick and Roy were not very good with money at all and did not pay much attention to the books. And, and I tell a story uh, uh, in my book about how uh, that particular problem of theirs uh, it became quite an issue for them one day. Uh, and uh, Teeny was able to take care of it uh, without a lot of fanfare. Um, and that particular incident um, really sort of cemented uh, her credibility in their mind and helped them understand how dependent they were. And that was the point at which she finally felt comfortable enough to say, okay, you guys are no longer in charge of the money. Mm-hmm. You, you know, Roy, you're running the, you're booking the matches. Nick, you're head of promotions. But neither one of you are allowed to take any money uh, out of our safe or anywhere else without checking with me first. Um, and, and that was, the, the, I think, a real turning point in her career, uh, which then, of course, eventually evolved into her starting to run some of the towns. And, and it was that point in which she really started to, to enjoy a better income. As, you know, as a bookkeeper, she certainly made more money than as a ticket seller. But it was when she started running towns uh, that the money started flowing a bit more freely in her direction. Mm-hmm. And also cementing uh, trust and friendship with, with Nick Goulas and, and Roy Welch. I mean, these are were long-standing uh, friendships with both of these gentlemen that uh, survived, uh, and, and I guess uh, to a degree uh, kind of had a, a short-circuiting uh, as the 70s moved on, especially in the case of Nick Goulas. Well, now don't misunderstand. Teeny remained very close friends with Nick mm-hmm. until he died. Mm-hmm. In fact, she, he, she was probably his only friend. Um, the split between Nick uh, and my Uncle Jerry uh, was a really kind of a crushing blow for Teeny. She thought of Nick as a brother. Um, he, he treated her with complete respect. He, she was probably the only person uh, that could rein him in. Um, and, um, you know, after the split... Um, she remained close with him, 
And then after he ended up in Bordeaux Hospital outside of Nashville, which is where uh, he was basically left to die by, by his family, um, she went and visited him every Sunday afternoon and, until the day he died. So um, that, that she was able to prevent that business breakup between her son and, and Nick uh, from affecting the the very deep friendship that she had with Nicholas, mm-hmm. and let's kind of talk into you know you you mentioned uh, she started got it into the promotion in the promoting ranks. Let's talk about how that happened. Uh, some of the towns that were offered up, and, and eventually uh, that leading to a second generation of Jarrett taking tagging along for the ride, or dr- actually being the driver. Let's talk about Teeny and her promoting days. Well, so there was. Um, and forgive me, I uh, this is why I'm not a historian because sometimes these details escape me. Oh. But I believe it was Columbia, Tennessee, where Nick was running a regular show. And since you've just read the book, you may be able to correct me on that if I've if I've gotten that wrong. But I think it was Columbia, where uh, the town manager had quit or gotten fired or somehow they they needed a new town manager. And Teeny knew about this, and because she had been in charge of the books, she knew that the town managers, you know, they made good money. They got a a portion of the of the gate um, from the ticket sales, and so she prepared herself for this big speech uh, to Nick and Roy about why she thought that she should be the one to do this, and uh, it turned out to be kind of a non-event. She made the the you know she suggested it and was ready to to argue for her case, and Nick immediately said, you know, Christine, that is a great idea. Yes, you that you 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 are the town manager from now on, and she was kind of dumbfounded by that. She was thrilled, but thought it was going to be more of a fight because at the time there was there were no women town managers uh, in the promotion, and so you know she then uh, took that town over and did such a good job uh, that she just ended up uh, getting you know more towns and uh, and then of course. Uh, once things uh, split between Nick and Jerry, uh, she had her stable of towns um, primarily in Kentucky uh, plus uh, 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 plus Evansville, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So she would, uh, you know, in the, throughout the seventies, she would uh, uh, she ran Louisville on Tuesday nights, Evansville Wednesday nights, one night a week. I said she said seventies. I should say seventies and eighties. And then one one night a uh, one week a month. Uh, she would go to Lexington on Thursdays, but then the other Thursdays she would run spot shows um, elsewhere uh, throughout Kentucky. Um, she also ran the matches in Nashville every Saturday night, although she was not officially the town manager and, and, and didn't uh, enjoy in, in the profits from that particular event. Uh, but it, you know, Nashville was her town nonetheless, and she was there selling tickets. And in fact, she sold tickets in Nashville. Uh, after Jerry went out of business until shortly before she died in 1998. We're talking with Brennan Martin, author of Teeny, Professional Wrestling's Grand Day in the Life of Christine Jarrett here on Wrestling Memories. And I want to talk now about your uncle getting into the business, carving his way in. Uh, when did uh, Teeny decide uh, that uh, Jerry, her son, should tag along or, uh, you know, and eventually uh, be her wheel man uh, for the, for these uh, these cards and these uh, going along the circuit that she was promoting. Let's talk about how Jerry got into the fold. Well, you know, Jerry entered the business very young. Uh, Nick hired him when he was just a kid to sell programs uh, at the Hippodrome in Nashville. And, uh, you know, Jerry was just uh, like a kid in a candy store. He 
just loved it. He loved being around that environment. He was a student of the of the um, of wrestling, you know, his entire life. Uh, but Tini never really saw him as a wrestler. You know, she started taking him. Uh, you know, when when for the shows in Nashville, for instance, she, you know, she was she was running things at that time or helping out, and and so she would bring him along, and he would help set up chairs and, and break them down at the end of the night and things like that. And, and, uh, you know, my mother, you know, would, would be in the concession stand. Um, she was less of a fan of the business by a mm-hmm. long shot. Um, but she was you know still around it somewhat at that time. Uh, and, um, and Jerry just sort of hung around the office and he, he hung around the events and he, he, uh, eventually reached the point in which he wanted to get in the ring. You know, he wasn't involved in the, in the, promotion at that point other than as Sortini's helper um but uh but he wanted in the ring and and I tell this story in the book you know, Tini would have was having none of it um Jerry as everyone knows is not a, a a real big guy and she just felt like especially when he was young he was just too small uh and that he was you know that they were going to eat his lunch um and so she set up a bar for him to get over that she thought he would never pass. Um, and that had to do with getting trained by Sailor Moran, uh, a known shooter who, uh, she, you know, she put the word out to Sailor, you, you know, you don't go easy on him. You, you train him like you would anybody else. And, and Jerry, uh, went to Sailor and somehow he made it. He was, uh, he, he was a small guy, but, but he's always been a very tough guy. Um, and he proved to Sailor that, um, uh, you know, he, that he said, uh, Sailor, I believe, said, uh, you know, well, there won't be, you know, he, he can't whip every wrestler, he said, but there's not a mark in the building that can take him. <laughs> and Teeny had no choice but to say, okay, Jerry, um, I, I didn't think Sailor would ever give you his blessing, but if he says okay, then I have no choice. Um, and at that point, uh, Roy started, uh, started booking Jerry. Mm-hmm. You know, with Jerry's involvement in pro wrestling, that you know developed definitely a different uh, relationship dynamic with his mom uh, compared to what your your mother's relationship was uh, with with Christine. Could you talk about kind of that 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 dynamic and how it did have uh, its differences between the the two siblings? Absolutely. I mean, for for Jerry, wrestling was this glamorous business. Uh, in which, uh, you know, the tough guys, uh, got to come out on top. Mm-hmm. Um, they got the adulation of the fans and it was just something that really caught his imagination very early on. For my mother though, um, she, she never needed to be smartened up, right? She, from the moment she saw wrestling, she saw it as, uh, this fake sport with fake people who, Pretend to be mad at each other, but uh, behind, you know, backstage are best friends. Um, and, and she just she didn't get it. But on top of that, really, what what made her most dislike the business was that her mother loved it so much and spent so much time um, at the office and then eventually on the road. And so to her, wrestling was was what took her mother away. And um, so as a result, she hated the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really never wanted to have anything to do with it uh, once she got to the point where Teeny couldn't make her work in the concession stand anymore. Um, and so 
you know, that was really the, I think the main difference between, uh, between, uh, Jerry and my mother was just that, you know, Jerry saw it as an opportunity, uh, and my mother, Carolyn, she saw it as this obstacle to what could potentially be this picture perfect, uh, you know, home life if only her mother was around more. Mm-hmm. So what kind of what it boils down to, and I, and I hope I'm not stepping too far out of line is Jerry kind of got the mother where your mom kind of got more of the fatherly uh, route as far as because Christine was basically playing both the role of both parents. Well, yeah, to, my mother would say and, and has said um, that uh, that Teeny was not a very good mother, but she was an outstanding father. Uh, Teeny, she was the provider of the family. I mean, she's the one that that mm-hmm. that brought in the money, um, you know, not just for for my mother and Jerry, but for for lots of people in the family. Um, and she was the one who would take on um, the, you know, quote, man's work around the house. So if, you know, if something needed to be done where you had to pull out a ladder and get up on the roof or whatever, Teeny was the one to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas her mother, um, Birdie, would, would do all of the woman's work around the house, the cooking, the cleaning, the raising of the children. And so I don't know uh, that I would say that Jerry got the the mother. I would I think I would say that you know Jerry um, he certainly spent a lot more time with his yeah. mother, um, uh, but I don't think she ever really played a classic uh, mothering um, role for him. Um, mm-hmm. She was not a she was not a disciplinarian. You know Jerry kind of he Jerry got to do what he wanted to do, and and he. Uh, he was he sort of um took that um you know uh father of the house uh, role kind of early in life um and mm-hmm. although you know i don't mean that exactly in the sense that he wasn't he wasn't disciplining my mother and he wasn't you know bringing in money and things like that but he he was just he was the man of the house and he he acted like it and so jerry jerry did what jerry wanted to do Mm-hmm. And what he did too in the seventies was he got to be more in the promotion, the line of promotion with with Memphis uh, Wrestling, and that uh, you know rising star soon encouraged Jerry, and Jerry felt more encouraged to uh, try to buy himself in or get himself a uh, you know some ownership stake in, in in the Memphis territory with Nick Goulas, and this is kind of where the story gets a little. It gets a little rocky with uh, dealing with uh, not only Jerry, but, you know, with Christine, who was a lifelong friend. We talked about that, how she's remained a lifelong friend. But things really started to kind of uh, get a little murkier when it came to uh, uh, Jerry wanting to make his a bigger mark, a bigger impression with uh, in the promotional side of Memphis and dealing with uh, Nick Goulas as a partner or as a perceived partner at the time, which also had to deal with, uh, well, Nick's offspring george goulas so it, was, it got to be a bit <laughs> a bit murky those waters down there in memphis well they did and you know jerry got involved in the booking and and um and, and booking sort of the memphis end of the business um and, and that had a lot to do with the fact that the territory that um that this promotion was covering was was pretty large you know uh, tennessee and kentucky are both you know fairly l- large states from an east-west perspective and so it was really difficult for the boys to uh, work both ends of the state. Um, and so since, you know, so Nick sort of took over managing the, the eastern side of, of Tennessee and, and, and down toward Chattanooga. And, and Jerry got more involved in booking the western end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
but what what uh, what ended up happening, of course, was that uh, Jerry ended up bringing in more money than Nick. He he in, ended up um, the the towns he was running were more successful. The the shows he was booking brought in more fans, and and he because I mean, as I said, Jerry had been a student of this from a very early age, so he. He learned what worked and what didn't, and, and he learned, you know, what gimmicks to, you know, to, to bring in and what kind of programs to run, things like that. And so, um, and then about that same time, as you say, it gets murky, uh, George Goulas came along and, and, um, and Nick really started pushing him uh, to the chagrin of a lot of people, including the fans. Mm-hmm. And to call him peculiar would be the again another one of those understatements of the century. Uh, let's talk about George Goulas, uh, the, the the guy. I mean, this was just a, a lose lose situation. I mean, not only uh, you know he had his father trying to promote him and try to push him to be this some this character, this professional wrestler, something that he was really not, and and getting him involved with uh, you know guys that could probably you know basically carried the load for him, but still it did not look good, and as as a result houses went down but yeah this george Goulas character from re- just reading through uh, th- this book and other other books that talked about memphis he was a very interesting cat he was and you know george um george was raised in a way that uh really sort of contributed to some of his uh peculiarities and, and what i mean by that is that you know nick adored george and just pampered him his entire life. And he, Nick used to brag uh, about the fact that uh, he always left a stack of 20s on George's um, uh, dresser so that George would always have access to any money he needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, was, it, it was not a, a way of, of raising a kid that, that promoted the kind of um, tough character development uh, that some of the more successful wrestlers uh, have and you know and the other thing was just physically you know George is 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 very tall and, uh, and was very uh, thin uh, as a young man um, and so he just you know although guys like you know I think Tex Riley you know kind of fit that had that same physique as well but somehow he made it it work uh, whereas um, uh, George w- was not able to do that he was a bit clumsy um, kind of gangly. Um, he loved basketball, and that uh, actually uh, tell a story about uh, George's love for basketball and how that played into uh, the matches uh, uh, sort of late in the story of the breakup between uh, Nick and Jerry. But um, Nick just, he couldn't help himself. You know, George saw, you know, Nick spent as you know, more time in the office even than Teeny. So he was a, he was a workaholic, and, and George wanted the, the, the praise of his father, like, like most, Mm -hmm. uh, sons do. Um, and so George wanted, he wanted to be a successful wrestler and Nick was going to make that happen. Um, Come hell or high water, as the mm. saying goes. Yeah, and when you get down to it, uh, you know when you when you're at that that lack of experience, and you're getting thrown in, and by your your very ambitious father wanting to make good for some of the things he wasn't able to make good on in life, by way of giving him this promotion. But sixty minutes with Harley Race, I mean, 
Harley Race yeah. could probably uh, uh, get better uh, moves and better charisma from a, a sandbag in this situation. But 60 minutes, <laughs> could you imagine, Harley, how he must have felt? I mean, and how a lot of guys must have felt that these experienced these top of the top of the card guys, and even down to your carpenters at the beginning of the card, watching this guy, you know, basically skate by on, you know, family name and principle. Well, and, you know, not just 60 Minutes, but a 60-minute Broadway. Um, I mean, who is it that's going to believe that Harley is not eventually going to get the the best of George? And I've never heard Harley talk about that match. Um, My uh, recounting of it uh, comes from talking uh, with other wrestlers. And I, off the top of my head right now, I forget who specifically uh, told me that story. It might have been Jim Cornette, now that I think about it. Um, But in any case, um, yeah, it was just a... uh, it was just a, it was a sham, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the, that match was a complete shambles. So I'd uh, I'd love to hear Harley's account of that because he just must have been disgusted with the whole thing. I mean, you know, he was. He had to be. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of must have been just the general tone uh, around there with with George. And of course, I mean, that had to be just been sticking in in, in Jerry too. I mean, that th- this was one of those things. Of course, that was on his mind because he was, consi- you know, he was a promoter too, as well as a guy on the card. He wanted to have draw people in, and when you bring a guy, you know, that that underexperienced, that's got to be frustrating not only on you know his bottom line and other people's bottom line, from fans to promoters alike. And this really kind of started to drive the chasm between uh, Goulas and uh, Jerry, Nick and and Jerry, which really had the, its ultimate blow up here over, uh, I guess, a, a notion that Jerry thought that he was uh, buying into the promotion, and it just simply wasn't to be. That's right. Uh, and Jerry, um, you know, he he made a mistake there. Um, and, and he, um, I don't know if, if he would call it the biggest mistake of his career, but it was certainly a mistake that he uh, tried to learn from in that uh, he didn't realize uh, when he thought he was buying in that the contract he had uh, was not, in fact, uh, delivering shares to him in the way that he thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was something that was a, a big blow to him. Jerry was embarrassed uh, about that having happened. Uh, but that was the point uh, at which uh, he had you know, decided absolutely the time for the breakup had come. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, what, what led to to what a, what a a mess just to to get, maintain independence or create his own independence because you not only had to, had to uh, basically start anew, but with Jerry, I mean, with no with any other guy, it probably would have went off way worse. But the way Jerry had things organized, the way he knew what guys would go, what would stay, he had a couple of people that stuck with Nick, but the way Jerry had this. I guess future mind, future mindedness to, uh, you know, break away and know that he's not breaking away just completely naked to the world. He's actually got himself a foundation, which also included not only the guys that had agreed to come over with him, but we're talking about a television deal and also having that tangible of having a guy like Lance Russell, too. I mean, you got to remember, Lance Russell was a very integral part of engaging audiences for Memphis wrestling. Well, that's absolutely right. And the TV deal. Well, it was the combination of the TV deal and the support that Jerry, quite surprisingly to everybody who was on Nick's side, uh, the, the support that Jerry got from the NWA uh, that made it possible for him to, to break out. Um, Jerry understood the power of television. He, he understood the, you know, the power of the media to help promote the business, um, which, you know, jumping a- ahead a little bit, a- also 
made it uh, a bit tragic in the in the fact that he ended up losing the business because uh, because Vince McMahon uh, was able to capitalize mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the the change in television from broadcast TV to cable. Oh yeah, I mean that's when within the year 1983 when when really uh, the seeds of this uh, McMahon expansion went. Uh, yeah, it was pretty much a lot of scorched earth left in its wake as far as the uh, territory system. And uh, Jerry, you know, he fought. And, and of course, a lot of things you got to give Jerry credit for, too, and, and the people that worked with him. There was a lot of good innovations in, in, in the way he promoted some of his wrestlers by way of the, the promotional video. Uh, he had some great angles. He, he he really worked up some good stuff. I mean, when you put him and Lawler together, some of the seeds ended up sprouting out in the 80s. Uh, really, I mean, when you talk about Andy Kaufman coming in and, and working with Jerry. I mean, not only did that, uh, you know, create a, an interesting element, a different side of a main event that you wouldn't see, uh, probably not any other territory at the time. But I, I mean, geez, I mean, this is a mainstream thing when you've got your guy, your top dog on national television, late night national TV, you, you, you had something going for him. So, I mean, with Jerry, he, he, he had that that way to think. He had that future mindedness. That's absolutely right. And of course, that's an interesting story that I've learned more about recently uh, from listening to Lawler's podcast in which he's been spent several uh, of his episodes talking about uh, uh, the whole Kaufman affair. Um, so there were there were lots of details about that 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 I was unaware of. And, and the one in particular was the fact that uh, Kaufman first took the idea uh, to uh, Vince and Vince said, absolutely not. Um, and um, Bill Apter uh, apparently, uh, you know, was aware uh, of the the opportunity that Vince had turned down and, and knew the the guy that that Kaufman was working with and and said, you know what, I I know these guys down in in uh, Tennessee who I think might be interested. And of course, uh, Jerry um, uh, Jerry and Jerry absolutely jumped at it when they. When they heard about it, because they understood that that kind of a of a nationally recognized name uh, in Andy Kaufman was something that would draw people in. Um, they didn't really know what to expect uh, when he sh- showed up, um, but uh, it really turned out to be a, a, quite the boon to them, as you said, cu- culminating in uh, the appearance on Letterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll never forget watching that show live because I was just enthralled with the whole thing. Uh, when I was a kid, and um, when Lawler smacked him, I leapt out of my chair, <laughs> cheering and just astonished that I, that had just happened. And of course, I was not smart at the time. You know, I I did not know uh, that the whole thing uh, was a work. Uh, and of course, the 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 smack was not planned. Um, how that event unfolded on Letterman uh, was just kind of, you know, it's basically two improvisational guys doing what they did best, uh, and um, and it resulted in uh, something that caught the attention of, you know, not just this country, but I think a, a lot of folks around the world. Mm-hmm. And Andy's dedication, too, to sending promos that he would make with uh, his partner, writing partner, Bob Zamuda, really uh, kept people going, too. I mean, this this was something that drawn on. It wasn't just a, a short little uh, little spark of a feud. They, they ended up extending it because, you know, Andy was very, very uh, able, able-minded to participate in this angle. And I really think uh, if Andy wouldn't have passed, I, I think there would have been more involvement from Andy uh, in whatever was left of the, the territory system of pro wrestling or even eventually with McMahon in 84. A lot of what ifs. 
Absolutely. I mean, Andy was a perfect heel. Um, he loved making people hate him. Uh, and so, you know, Jerry and Jerry, they were willing to, to milk that cow for as long as they could because uh, it just brought in so many people. Every time Andy showed up in Memphis, uh, they had a, a, a sold out or, or nearly sold out house. It was it was a it was great for them. And back to McMahon, and I want I want to know what 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 the you know the impact of the McMahon expansion and, and and you know kind of looking over your shoulder as a promoter in in the Memphis territory, what that was uh, impact wise uh, on Teeny's uh, state of mind at the time because she's watching this as well and very much aware of it uh, of the way events is starting to kind of uh, pack man up these uh, once vital territories TV time and doing whatever they can to make it a national thing and kind of uh, taking a bump on some of the local television, the local wrestlings. Yeah, Teeny, she hated Vince McMahon. And, and the closest you would ever hear her to um, uttering a curse word was when she uh, would always refer to him as that so-and-so Vince McMahon. Um, and she never said Vince McMahon without prefacing it with that so-and-so. Um, and there were a couple different things about him that she really detested. And, and one was the fact that um, he was encroaching upon the uh, the territory system, which she had, of course, kind of grown up in the business respecting. And, and Nick and Roy were, of course, uh, at times um, very hands-on in their enforcement uh, of that uh, system when, when uh, neighboring territories would try to encroach on, on theirs. And so with... Uh, Vince uh, taking things national and, and hiring away talent and things like that. She just felt that that was just um, that's just not the way you did business, um, and, and she felt like he was breaking uh, some unwritten rules uh, that uh, that shouldn't be broken. Uh, but then it, it got worse uh, with the Attitude Era, uh, and in particular uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, Teeny always thought that. Uh, wrestling should be a, 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 the type of event that you can bring the whole family to. Um, and she was, uh, and that's why, you know, she had her rules about uh, the, the wrestlers never, you know, cursing, especially on the mic. But she didn't want them to curse anywhere, even when they were in the locker room by themselves, because she felt that it might spill out when they were in the public. Um, that's why she was also very much against um the wrestlers frat, fraternizing uh, with the girls, uh, or as uh, everybody knows them as the arena rats mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that would hang out at the back door. Uh, Teeny did not want that going on at all because a lot of these guys were were family men, and 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 uh, Teeny's own experience uh, with unfaithful men, you know, helped to drive the fact that she just she didn't like that at all, and she wanted them to have nothing to do with that, um, even though. You know, as it turns out, that's actually a sort of a part of the business that promoters, you know, might encourage in order to 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 bring the girls into the into the arena. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, uh, so when 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 Steve Austin, uh, you know, cut a promo and I don't remember exactly what he said, but I um, it, it was a word that he used that she felt, you know, one should not be on used by a wrestler, you know, and two should definitely not be on TV. And she just felt that that was a a, a turn for the worse uh, in the wrestling business uh, than Vince McMahon was encouraging that was making it more seedy uh, that she just couldn't forgive. Um, and so uh, the the and then of course the 
the nail in the coffin, uh, so to speak, in terms of you know the reaching the point at which she would never be able to forgive him was when uh, Vince uh, smartened up the entire world uh, and started referring to it as sports entertainment yeah. uh, because she was convinced that um, there was just no way the fans would keep coming uh, unless they thought that uh, what was going on in the ring was absolutely legitimate and bona fide and, and completely authentic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, all the while before, uh, you know, you, you know, in the 80s, yeah, they were surviving. Uh, Jerry's territory was surviving. But now, Teeny had another guy, another uh, generation in the car, let's just say, with uh, the development of what became uh, the career of her grandson, Jeff. So now you're talking a third generation of the Jarrett's uh, moving on in pro wrestling as we head towards the end of the 80s in the territory system. Yeah, that's right. Jeff started uh, um, accompanying Teeny on her weekly circuit uh, to uh, learn about the promotion side of the business. And, uh, you know, so she would... Uh, on her way to Louisville, for instance, she might stop off in Owensboro or somewhere else in order to put up window cards for an upcoming spot match. And she would have the the places that she had been to before, places that knew her, uh, that you know where she wanted to go in. But then there might be another street uh, where she didn't know anybody, and she'd give uh, Jeff a stack of cards to go put those out. And so he was not only you know sort of doing that and helping her. Uh, learn kind of the advertising side of the business, but he was also um, traveling with her and, and seeing sort of how shows were run and and how they um, how they needed to be put on in order to to keep the fans happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that eventually evolved into uh, to him deciding uh, he wanted to get in the ring as well. Mm-hmm. And he he started off with the, the referee route, didn't he? Before they they, they got him in uh, full on with pro wrestling uh, in in the ring as a competitor. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, a lot of guys started out that way. In fact, my father spent some time in the ring, uh, but he started out as a, as a referee until, you know, one night, uh, the, you know, somebody doesn't show up and, and, and he got the chance to, uh, to put his trunks on and, and, uh, and wrestle. And, and, um, I don't know if it's exactly the same situation with Jeff, but yeah, he started out as a, as a referee and, and then, uh, moved, uh, into, uh, um, into being, uh, one of the, one of the competitors. Yeah, and that definitely planted the seeds for his later development with uh, with him and his dad initially with uh, TNA, and now with him working behind the scenes uh, with with Impact Wrestling. I want to uh, take you into the wind as we're winding down today. Uh, I want to take us into the '90s, of course. Uh, U.S. or the CWA, which eventually morphed into the USWA, uh, survived. They were holding on by a thread, and you know the early '90s saw that uh, Memphis became an exchange of talent for the WWF, but it also saw a change of ownership as well with Jerry getting out of the business. And now this, when him selling the, uh, his part of the business, I guess, uh, of Memphis, this also was a delta blow to Christina as well in, in, in its way, in a negative way. Let's talk about the transfer of ownership uh, from Jerry getting out to uh, Jerry Lawler and a new partner and how that just impacted everything in sometimes not the most positive light. Well, that's right. You know, Jerry, uh, Jerry hung on for a long time, um, and uh, an argument could probably may, be made that he hung on uh, longer than he should have. Um, mm-hmm. it, it reached the point at, at, at that in which they were basically losing money for every show they put on. Uh, Teeny, you know, shared that with my mother. She she wanted to see them close it down uh, because they were they were losing money, but at the same time. Jerry wasn't ready, and, and Teeny was not about to to leave you know, without him. 
And so they they hung on for a while, and then Jerry finally he'd had enough, and he sold to uh, to Lawler and a guy by the name of Larry Burton, mm-hmm. um, uh, a Hollywood guy that uh, that Lawler got to know uh, through um, the the whole Kaufman affair, and um, and they were convinced that as a development organization uh, for the WWE, uh, excuse me, with the WWF at the time, that they could that they had a viable business. Um, and that uh, if they, they ran it in a different way and didn't try to do as many, uh, as many shows, whatever, that they, that they could make it work. And, um, you know, and so Teeny, after the, she was no longer involved as an owner, a co-owner of the promotion, um, she went back to selling tickets. Um, so she continued to go to the events in Nashville, uh, work in the ticket booth, uh, you know, and, and seeing the fans that she had known and loved for really for the past 50 years uh, or so. And so um, that that worked okay for a while. Um, and then I tell the, the story in the book about how that eventually came to a, a very um, uh, uh, sad end for Teeny in the sense that, um, well, she got fired for the first time in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I won't go into the details here, no. but um, that was a, a really embarrassing situation for her uh, to essentially be shown the door, not by Lawler, you know, uh, I've got nothing bad to say about him at all. Uh, he's always been a, a, an incredible friend of the family and, and has always shown nothing but the utmost respect for Teeny. Uh, but, um, Burton didn't like the way things were running in Nashville. Uh, they were sort of, a uh, it, it was still running on sort of an old school program that, that Burton thought was time to update. Um, and so uh, he ended up uh, uh, letting Teeny go. Mm-hmm. And and thankfully, you know, as Teeny, you know, this was towards the end of her life, of course, but it wasn't the end at all for her for wrestling. Uh, and, and thanks to uh, promoters like Burt Prentice, she was able to kind of keep uh, her, her head in the, in the pro wrestling game and, and kind of visit the friends and, and, and help out in whatever way she could. Huh? Well, that's right, because, you know, as it turns out, Burton did not know what he was doing and it quickly went out of business. And so Bert uh, Prentice, you know, picked up the uh, uh, the mantle of running shows in Nashville. And as he told me, the very first thing he did when he had scheduled his first uh, show uh, at the fairgrounds in Nashville was to call Teeny uh, and hire her to sell tickets. And uh, so she was just thrilled to be able to return to doing that. And and she did that uh, um, until until 1998, um, just a few weeks. Uh, before she died, when when she got sick and had to enter the hospital for the last time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you remember uh, seeing those those last few months uh, when Teeny when she did when health did take a turn for the worse? I mean, it had to have been a, 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 a bit on the sad side and just unusual side because of a woman who was always up and always working and always had something to do, whether it was her job or whether she was helping a family member. It, it, it must have just been, you know, kind of a, a punch in the gut to, to those around her to see someone who is so vital and so helpful and so considerate to be at this point in her life. Well, of course it was. It was really tough. But, you know, she was a fighter. And um, we there, there was a point at which the family gathered uh, at the hospital in, at, at Vanderbilt um, thinking that uh, this, you know, this could be it. Um, and we we all sat out in the waiting room for for hours on end, uh, trying to sort of pay attention to, to her status and, and, and fearing the worst, but hoping for the best. Um, and, and she, she actually recovered somewhat. I mean, she never left the hospital, but she got to a more stable point, 
um, in which uh, she ended up lingering for, for quite some time. I mean, we're only talking a matter of a, of a couple months at most. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was tough. I mean, she had, she had lived a, a, a hard life uh, in terms of the, the, the work that she had done. Um, but, but it had been a good one and, and she was very happy at what she did. So, um, you know, it's always sad when, when these things happen. Um, but there, there was, um, there was at least a lot of time for us all to, to say our goodbyes. Well, it's been a wonderful uh, nearly an hour here chatting with you, Brennan, about the life of your grandmother, Christine Jarrett, uh, that you've captured in a wonderful book, Teeny, Professional Wrestling's Grand Dame. Now, as we close today, is there anything you would like uh, our listeners to uh, to know about the you would like to kind of that we haven't mentioned, haven't touched on, as well as information as to where you can uh, get yourself or a listener can get themselves a copy of of this book. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. I don't know that there's anything uh, specific that I want to touch on. Um, there's, of course, a lot more uh, stories uh, to mm-hmm. tell and and that have been told in the book. And I I hope everyone who has has listened today and and uh, uh, would like to know more will will take the opportunity to pick up the book. It's available. Uh, on Amazon in either paperback or, or Kindle form. Um, I'm also uh, starting uh, what I call a teeny book tour uh, in which I'm going to be appearing uh, at uh, shows uh, around the uh, Kentucky and Tennessee territory uh, for the next month or two or for sort of as long as the, as the books keep selling. I'll be there to, to sell books and, and sign them. Um, and you can get information about that tour and where I will be on the website at teeny-book.com. Uh, so um, I would uh, encourage anyone who wants to come out and, and uh, get a copy of the book or, or, or get it uh, signed or even just to talk to me about their memories of, of Teeny because she, um, she spent a lot of time with the fans and she really she knew and loved a lot of people uh, in this uh, territory. Um, I'd love them to, to come out and, and, uh, and meet me. All right. Thank you so much, Brandon Martin. And uh, we definitely wish you all, all the best and, and great success with this book. I enjoyed it. And I know uh, the listeners who haven't yet c- picked up a copy, once they do, whether it's a Kindle, a hard copy, paperback, whatever it may be, they will enjoy and they will find themselves sitting down and wondering, where did the time go after they finished reading the book from cover to cover? It's just that engaging. Thanks so much, Glenn. I really appreciate it. For Rasslin' Memories, I'm Glenn Brockett. So long for now.